As always, I remain your humble host, Allsgood. You've caught me in the middle of fiddling with a new exhibit, as I fear I may have permanently damaged it before I even displayed it. This seemingly innocuous table you see before you once belonged to the widow of Houdini. She used it in seances to attempt to contact the dead, specifically her late husband, the renowned escape artist and exposer of humbuggery. Clearly, the lesson was somewhat lost on her, poor creature. I was rather excited to have acquired the piece, as you could well imagine, and had a few close confidants over for drinks last night to take a look at it, and, well, after a few dirty martinis too many, we decided to take it for a ride. I attempted to contact Houdini first, of course, but couldn't reach him. I rather suspect he remains mum out of spite. But... We did manage to contact a shade on the other side. None other than Andy Warhol, famed pop artist of the last century. But, unfortunately, all he wished to speak about were the many other famous dead people. Had we spoken to Judy Garland or Elizabeth Taylor, what about Confucius or Kubla Khan? Nothing else. Now he won't leave. I truly fear I may have permanently broken that table. I shall need to work on it some more. In the meantime, it reminds me of a story you may listen to whilst I try to fix this mess. Laura Durr is a writer and social media coordinator from Vancouver. Oh, Washington. Laura Durr is a writer and social media coordinator from Vancouver, Washington, where she lives with her husband, their rescue dog, and too many cats. She is a lifelong Pacific Northwest resident and has a BA in creative writing from Linfield College. Her other stories have appeared in Escape Pod, Shoreline of Infinity, and Mad Scientist Journal. The Analytical Engine of Hester Watts, Grand Mistress of the Unseen, by Laura Dier. Read by Maria Rose. With a dramatic swish of silk scarves, I took my seat at the black draped table. Mrs. Horace, what brings you to my parlor this day? Parlor was a generous description for the seance chamber I'd built in the back of a steam lorry 
but Mrs. Horace hardly noticed. She sniffled and dabbed her eyes with a lace-trimmed handkerchief, but even in the flickering candlelight, I could tell her tears were feigned. Mistress Watts, my late husband. Mrs. Horace broke into exaggerated sobs, at which point her son, a handsome young man perhaps a little younger than me, sat up with a sigh. My mother wishes to confer with the spirit of my father, Mr. Wesley Horace of Arosphere Enterprises. The younger Mr. Horace was clearly a skeptic. They were always more satisfying to impress than the believers. People like him needed to be convinced by a show unlike anything other mediums could provide. But I knew my analytical engine was up to the task. It helped that today's client was the famous widow of an infamous aeronautics mogul. Mr. Horace's company was better known for its disastrous crashes than its innovative designs. Camden Town was abuzz with gossip about the Horaces, and their staff, particularly the son of their beleaguered driver, were more than willing to sell me a few of their secrets. My punch cards were ordered like cues in the symphony to address any possible question the widow and son might ask, from illegitimate children to corporate secrets. It also helped that most of London had not yet heard that Hester Watts, grandmistress of the unseen, was a fraud. My mobile seance parlor made keeping ahead of my rapidly deteriorating reputation as simple as topping up the boiler. The rarefied circles so obsessed with spiritualism enjoyed the slightly scandalous detour to my quaint workplace, while the constant hiss of the lorry steam engine gave them a sense of privacy. It never occurred to them that the engine could be powering a computational machine that could impress Babbage and Lovelace themselves. His passing is a great loss, I said nodding solemnly beneath my scarves. Should Mr. Horace answer us today, what do you wish to ask? Mrs. Horace took a trembling breath. It's just he had an assortment of precious gems, very fine treasures acquired during his travels in India, but it seems only he knew where they are, and I, I wish to find them, for they were my darling husbands, and they're ever so dear to me. Another wealthy widow, utilizing a medium in order to obtain more wealth. How unoriginal. I'd already worn out my welcome in America, but here, in the land of my birth, I could find innumerable bereaved aristocrats willing to pay so the deceased could tell them about airship stocks or secret caches of wealth, or whether cousin so-and-so was really the intended beneficiary of the estate. The whole business was exasperating, but soon I'd have enough for passage to Australia. There, unlike in Britain, or even the States, no one would turn his nose up at a female engineer. Besides, the weather was ever so agreeable. I shall attempt to contact him. Be still, please. Concealed by the table, I fed a series of punch cards from my skirts into a slot in the lorry's false wall. The hisses and clanks of my analytical engine were muted by the insulated walls. Still, I raised my voice as I called upon the spirits. Mr. Wesley Horace, 
your bereaved wife and son seek you. Will you speak with them? Right on time, a small drum mounted above the lorry's false ceiling wrapped two sharp beats. Mrs. Horace gasped. Even her son deigned to look interested. Wesley, darling, is that you? Rap thrice if it's you. Or play us a flute, the son muttered. I swiftly picked another card from my skirt and fed it into the machine's override slot. Switches clicked behind me, so softly only I would hear, as the analytical engine interrupted my initial set of programming instructions and rearranged its gears and springs to carry out its new orders. Three times the drum beat, and from another corner of the lorry, the wistful trill of a flute sounded. The younger Mr. Horace now looked genuinely impressed. Mrs. Horace wasn't even pretending to cry anymore. Wesley, she cried. Your gems, where are they? Give us a sign. The analytical engine ran through its series of cards, triggering levers and gears concealed behind the false walls, which in turn tapped on drums, twisted creaky boards, and ignited gas lamps within hidden projectors. An image materialized on the wall next to us, a rectangle of color suggesting a generic landscape. Do you recognize that painting? I asked in a theatrical whisper. That dreadful Dutch landscape in his office, Mrs. Horse gasped. You loved that painting. Of course, you'd hide your treasures behind it. The analytical engine gave a final drum roll. A hidden valve extinguished the candles on the table. I slumped and let my scarves fall across my face, pretending to be overcome. In truth, I was practically beaming with pride. I'd built an analytical engine by myself from scrounged gears and wires, and made it mobile, no less. And it was as reliable as a rooster. Maybe I ought to stay in London and submit it to some stodgy scientific board, if only to see the reactions on their mustachioed faces. Your husband was most eager to help you, Mrs. Horace, I said weakly. He wants you to be happy. Mrs. Horace was already on her feet, rummaging among her ample skirts for her purse. She dropped the whole thing on the table. Thank you, Mistress Watts, she said. You've saved our family legacy. She dabbed at her eyes again, though they were still dry. There would certainly be tears later, though, once she'd tossed the priceless Dutch landscape aside and destroyed the wall in search of gems that weren't there. I felt no remorse. The family legacy would remain as gilded as ever. It is my pleasure, I said, plucking the purse from the table. The son cast an appraising glance over his shoulder as he escorted his mother down the lorry steps into the sunny morning. I had indeed managed to impress him, and he was quite handsome, not to mention wealthy, gems or no. Too bad I'd have to leave Camden Town before getting the opportunity to know him better. I closed up the lorry behind them. I cycled out the punch cards and filed them away in their box. The walls were only slightly warm. Apparently I'd successfully fixed the overheating problem that had almost given me away in Bath. 
I pried off a few wall panels to make sure the gears were still well-oiled. In particular, the rapid-fire rotations required to power the drum roll were especially taxing. Everything seemed to be in order, though. From the assorted landscape slides on the rotating wheel to the rubber seams that muffled the hiss and clank of the analytical engine. With my post-appointment checks complete, I clambered into the lorry's cab and let myself out through the driver's door. I'd parked a discreet distance from the Regent's Park so as not to alarm any of the residents taking the morning air. Other than the four-legged automatons trimming the grass, no one was around to see a young woman, dressed in spangly black scarves, jump down from a hissing steam lorry. I rolled up the painted canvas signs hanging on the lorry's sides that advertised my trade. It was a lovely morning. The foxglove trees were in full flower, and the garden beds bloomed a riot of color that reminded me of the wildflower fields of my childhood. I climbed back into the driver's seat and allowed myself a moment to watch the gleaming dog-sized automatons as they trundled among the flowers. The sight filled me with longing. I tried to tell myself it was because of the beautiful automatons and not the nostalgia the flowers stirred in my heart. Before I could fall too deeply into introspection, I put the lorry in gear and drove down to Camden Lock. There were automatons here too, considerably larger and more tarnished models that handled cargo and pulled carts. The clamor was deafening compared to the reserved hush of the park. Traders, fishmongers, housewives, street vendors, and house help all mingled in the crowded market alleys. The air was thick with steam and redolent of canal water, coal, and sweat. Despite the commotion, I felt more at home here than I ever did in the tidy parks where I saw my clients. Here, I could go unnoticed, just another person trying to make her way. I felt pleasantly invisible, even in my ridiculous mistress of the unseen garb. I navigated carefully past other lorries and steam carriages and parked alongside the canal. Almost immediately, a pair of kitchen maids out doing the shopping hurried to my window. What'd you tell her? One of them asked breathlessly. She'll be tearing holes in the walls of her husband's study by the time you get back. They grinned at each other. The master'll be most upset. He's got gambling debts like his father. Probably wanted the gems to pay his off, too. Such a shame, isn't it? I pressed coins into their waiting palms. Some of that is for Roger, the driver's son. His commission, you might call it. Pleasure doing business. The maid giggled, tucking her payment inside her coat. I assume you've heard about Lord Owens losing his grandfather. I perked up. Why, no, I haven't. Another coin slipped out the window into her hand. Called him the old cannon they did, she continued. When he drank too much, which was every time to hear tell, added the other, he'd go off like a cannon, awful he was to upstairs and downstairs alike. But the grandson, I asked, Lord Owens. Cannon the third, the maid said, her lip twisting, only he don't have to be drunk. I gave them each another coin. 
You've been most helpful, if you're in touch with anyone at the Owens household. We'll send them your way. The maids nodded and stepped away, blending so seamlessly with the crowd that I lost them in mere moments. I started up the lorry's engine and returned to Regent's Park. My afternoon appointment wasn't due for another hour, but the analytical engine had to be ready to impress, and I had condolences to write to this Lord Owens. But three people, a man and two women, one dressed in black, were waiting for me when I returned my lorry to its usual place. The sight inspired a flash of panic. It was far too early for my next appointment, and the last time I had a crowd waiting for me was when Edinburgh discovered my secret and ran me out of town. I parked the lorry and disembarked with as much grace as one disembarking in petticoats from a very high lorry seat could muster. Before I could greet the visitors, the young man, who couldn't have been older than twenty, hurried up to me. Mistress Watts, yes. Please, we don't have an appointment, but I need your help. I am sorry, I said regally. I have another appointment within the hour. It's my husband. The woman in black, her round face blotchy from weeping, pushed forward. The other woman followed closely. They looked alike. Sisters, I judged, the one in black several years younger. Your husband? He died. She stood taller her chin set defiantly as if she expected me to mock or belittle her grief. Frederick is, was. Her voice wavered, but she gripped her sister's hand and continued. He was a merchant. His airship was lost over the Indian Ocean and no one will tell me. Her resolve finally broke and she dissolved into sobs in her sister's arms. The sister rubbed her back and whispered something to her. The young man looked helpless. I thought I must look just as dumbfounded as he, and was grateful for my veil. I'd never seen such a genuine display of grief from my customers. I'd also never had customers quite so shabby. The young man looked reasonably well off, but the widow and her sister wore no jewelry, and their dresses were several years out of style. They'd clearly tried to keep up appearances, but the fabrics were worn and patched in places. The widow still wore a ring, a thin gold band, but the sister's pale fingers showed no signs of ever bearing one. It crossed my mind that these people would not be able to pay me well. That thought was immediately eclipsed by annoyance that they might inconvenience my upcoming and no doubt wealthier client. I shoved both uncharitable reactions away. Pieces were beginning to click together. The poor girl had married for love, to a man below her station, and subsequently suffered her family's disapproval, or else the parents had died and left them nothing. Her maiden sister, perhaps, had supported the match, and in turn been supported by the deceased merchant. When did he die? I asked. Nearly two years ago, she whispered. I know it's a long time to be mourning, but if only I had answers. Perhaps. She glanced briefly at the young man, who looked back at her with tenderness. She took a deep breath, 
and slipped the wedding ring from her finger. We can pay, she said, holding it out. My hand twitched forward. Even a modest ring like hers was worth enough to send me to Australia in style. We can discuss that after, I managed. Come in. I ushered them inside the lorry's parlor. They arranged themselves around the table while I lit candles. The stack of programming cards thumped against my leg as I navigated the crowded space. What are your names? I'm Richard Weaver, and this is my best friend's widow, Mrs. Emmeline King, and her sister, Miss Eudora Conroy. I seated myself and began to secretly pull cards from their pouch. How did you know the deceased? I've known Fred since we were boys. We were schoolmates. Mr. Weaver was our best man, Emmeline added, smiling at him through her tears, though Richard wouldn't look up from the table. And then I got him the job that killed him, Richard said. I have contacts at Aerosphere Enterprises, and Fred thought a job on an airship sounded jolly exciting. It isn't your fault, Emmeline whispered. We keep telling him it isn't his fault, don't we, Eudora? It isn't, Mr. Weaver, darling, Eudora said. How curious that another appointment should connect to Aerosphere Enterprises and their cheap airships. I felt even more vindicated in leading Mrs. Horace to vandalize her own home. Richard finally looked up and met Emmeline's eyes. We'll have our answers soon, she whispered. More pieces clicked together. I began feeding cards into the analytical engine. It hummed to life like the opening of a sonata. He comes, I whispered. Small vents made the candles flicker. Something hidden in a corner knocked softly. Crumpling paper mimicked the sound of the ocean. Do you hear that? Richard was watching Emmeline avidly. I saw tears standing in his eyes. The seashore. She gazed back at him. Eudora still gripped her hand, but her watchful gaze was fixed on me, not her. Richard looked up at the ceiling. Freddy, tell us, tell us what happened. Shrieking metal, Emmeline covered her mouth with her free hand. Richard made as if to reach for her, but stopped. I closed my eyes. An accident, he says. A storm. The rudder snapped off and they were driven into the sea. Emmeline sobbed, and this time, Richard seized the sister's clasped hands. Eudora gently extricated hers. She was still watching me, her gaze meaningful in a way I believe I understood. She too was a skeptic, but her sister and Richard believed, and that was what mattered. I fed a trio of fresh cards into the machine. My watch hung next to the pouch of cards, but I resisted the urge to glance at it. I'd be finished with these clients in time for my next appointment. But even if I wasn't, he'd just have to bloody wait. Mr. King wishes you to know that retribution has come to Aerosphere Enterprises, I said. It was only slightly true, but they would have known that Mr. Horace had died. Indeed, the occasion might have triggered Emmeline's desire for closure, and in a few days' time, 
certain society papers would almost certainly regale their readers with the tale of the bereaved Mrs. Horace's madness. He says, Do not carry bitterness or vengeance in your heart, my beloved. I'd chosen my words purposefully and watched as Richard's face fell and his grip loosened on the word beloved. The sound of the surf resumed and a wave of rosy perfume wafted across the table. He is glad you summoned him, I told Emmeline. He misses you. And I him. But she was watching Richard's face, crestfallen. His wish now is only for your happiness. You are young and beautiful, and you mustn't waste the rest of your days in mourning. I've missed him so terribly. Of course you have. You had so little time together, but now you can treasure that time and carry the memory with you. And you, Mr. Weaver. I tilted my head as if listening. The sound of the surf ended. He, too, insists this is not your fault, and says he knows your heart is true and loyal, and that you will know what that means. Richard finally looked up at Emmeline. She gave a half-smile, a small gesture laden with hope. I think I do, he said. The last card cycled through the machine, producing a wistful trill of flute music and a fresh breath of roses. No dramatic drum roll or extinguishing candles were needed. Emmeline covered Richard's hand with her own. I sank back in my chair and spoke with feigned exhaustion. I hope you found the answers you sought. I did, Emmeline said. For the first time since they'd arrived, Richard smiled. We did. Eudora was the first to stand. I had the impression she'd been waiting months for her sister and their friend to let go of their guilt. Emmeline and Richard stood together, their hands still clasped across the table. Mistress Watts has another appointment, Eudora reminded them gently. Of course. Richard released Emmeline, who let her sister lead her out of the lorry, while still gazing over her shoulder at Richard. Mistress Watts, thank you. You have no idea. Oh, she stopped suddenly and removed the ring again. Here, your payment. Keep it, I said. This was very much my pleasure. Richard took a worn leather purse from his jacket pocket. It did not look heavy. At least let us donate something. Having to refuse payment a third time was becoming challenging to my character. I did not appreciate the sensation but I appreciated even less the character I'd have if I took money from these people. Consider this a gift towards your future happiness, I said. He stowed the purse reluctantly. We very much appreciated. Thank you, from both of us. Eudora led her sister from the lorry. Richard paused and turned back. I've never really put much stock in this spiritualism stuff. Was it true? Did he really say all that? Had any of my other clients asked, I might have acted affronted, or mystically reassured them, that yes, the spirits had spoken such, and you'd do well to heed them. Part of me still hastened to defend my reputation, and swear it had all been real. But not only was my professional exposure imminent, 
I couldn't bring myself to lie to this young man any more than I already had, after the months of heartache he'd surely endured. After all, if someone had been so honest to me back in my days of wild flower fields, I'd have been saved a very different kind of heartache. Does it matter, I said. Your hearts already know the truth. He thought for a moment, then nodded once and left the lorry. I wondered if he would ever tell Emmeline, or if she had suspicions of her own. At the end of the day, though, I'd done what any savvy medium, fraudulent or no, seeks to do. Tell their customer what they want to hear. If Emmeline and Richard went on to live happily ever after, and Eudora was taken care of, it would feel even more rewarding than all my years of swindling the crooked and malicious. I found I was quite glad I hadn't taken their payment. I let the candles burn. The smoke would add to the atmosphere for my next appointment, and the light was enough to pen a letter to Lord Owens. Canon III, I vowed, would be my final client in London. After setting him to rights, my analytical engine and I would be off to Australia, where surely more of the crooked and malicious, but also the heartbroken and grieving, awaited us. Well, it seems it's of no use. Warhol refuses to leave. He just asked if I had spoken with Jasper Johns yet and wanted to know if he still hated him. I haven't spoken with Johns yet, but I told him yes anyway. I fear I shall have to fetch some velvet ropes to place around this table and deny access to patrons, lest they should become terminally bored. Which, of course, means it's time for you to go for this evening. Do come again next time to the Gallery of Curiosities. Gallery of Curiosities is produced under a Creative Commons International 4.0 non-commercial attribution, no derivatives license. Don't sell it, change it, or make a transcript. If you like the show, talk about it. A lot. On social networks. If you don't like it, say nothing and we will wither and die in the void of our own obscurity. Our theme song is Ashes Ashes by Deus Ex Vapora Machina. This episode was produced in May of 2018. For full show notes, visit us on the web at gallerycurious.com. No, Mr. Warhol, I have not met God yet. Yes, I know, she's the most famous of all. Go to sleep. <laughs>